The title of this morning's message is Joseph and Jacob's Faith for the Future. This morning we will be continuing in chapter 11 of Hebrews, and we will be looking at Joseph's life of faith and how both his and his father's faith enabled them to see, believe in, and prophesy the future fulfillment of God's promises. Our starting point begins in verses 21 and 22 of Hebrews 11, and I have it for you in the Passion Translation. Jacob worshipped in faith's reality at the end of his life, and leaning upon his staff, he imparted a prophetic blessing upon each of Joseph's sons. Faith inspired Joseph and opened his eyes to see into the future, for as he was dying, he prophesied about the exodus of Israel out of Egypt and gave instructions that his bones were to be taken from Egypt with them. The last time I ministered, we tackled the first part <laughs> of this verse about Jacob and his faith. He had a true faith. He had a real relationship. And we saw how God made himself and his promises real to Jacob over and over again. God had showed himself faithful by fulfilling his promise to Jacob to bring him safely back to the land of promise. It wasn't without some wrestling, but, <laughs> but God did what God said he was going to do. And that's where we stopped last time, but that's not the end of Jacob's story. Jacob's story is intertwined with Joseph's. In fact, you can't get to the end of Jacob's story without first going through the story of Joseph. <laughs> so we're going to look at Joseph. Joseph's story is more than just a story about Joseph. It is also filled with prophetic shadows that point to a greater story that would be fulfilled by Jesus. But Joseph's story really begins in chapter 37 of Genesis. And I have it for you in the LEB version. Starting with verse 1. And Jacob settled in the land of the sojourning of his father in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. Now he was a helper with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, the wives of his father. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Don't you think they loved that? <laughs> Such a tattletale, Joseph. <laughs> Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons, for he was a son of his old age, and he made a robe with long sleeves for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and were not able to speak peaceably to him. The King James describes Joseph's coat or tunic as being made of many colors. But many scholars today prefer the description of a robe with long sleeves. The inference is that it was an expensive, ornamented robe, made for royalty, possibly with precious gems attached to it, and it also had long sleeves. At that time in history, only royalty wore long sleeves, which indicated to all who saw them that they did not do any menial labor. Instead, their position was one of ruling and reigning over others. <laughs> so we have that little <laughs> prophetic picture going on again. 
By Jacob distinguishing Joseph in this way, he set him up to be hated all the more. A lot of Jacob's problems <laughs> was because of Jacob. <laughs> he created all of this hate and discontent in his own household. It didn't have to be that way. So a lot of things that happened to Jacob were all about Jacob. His father created all this hate and discontent. So when Joseph then tattles on them, they're going to hate him even more. The father is making no way for reconciliation, no way for unification. It's really too bad. <laughs> but God can use anything and everyone. Now, was Joseph really a tattletale? I don't think so. Based on the character that we see Joseph displays later, I'm inclined to believe that Joseph was simply doing what his father asked him to do. Go watch the other ones. Let me know how they're doing. <laughs> Practice your ruling and reigning. <laughs> I don't think that his heart was about tattling. I think it was about his heart being willing to do what his father asked him to do. In this short passage, we can already see the similarities to the life of Jesus. Jesus was especially loved by his father, and Jesus had an expensive tunic that was usually only worn by either royalty or the wealthy, and Jesus was hated by his half-brothers too. <laughs> all of them, <laughs> which would include all of the Jews. And because Jesus called them into account for their willful unbelief. So you have the two pictures painted. One is Joseph, and he's trying to do the right thing for his father, but his brothers don't appreciate it. <laughs> and Jesus is definitely doing what the father wants him to do, and no, his brothers don't appreciate it. <laughs> and so Jesus, just like Joseph, was only doing what his father asked him to do. Jesus never had an ill will toward anybody. But I love that Jesus wasn't soft on the Pharisees. We think Jesus should always be soft with everybody. But Jesus knows what kind of medicine we need. <laughs> Sometimes we need the law before we come to Christ to show us that we need the grace. Because the Pharisees didn't think they needed any grace. They had pulled the law down to make it fit their life, <laughs> and they thought that was just fine. <laughs> no, Father was not happy, and Father sent his son. <laughs> now, we can see that God intervenes in Joseph's life by giving him prophetic dreams, which Joseph can't wait to share with his family. He wasn't helping himself. <laughs> and at first, it may seem unwise for him to do so, but the dreams weren't only for Joseph's benefit. Jacob and his brothers would also need to hear what God had planned, even if nobody else liked it. So God had a plan, and the only one who was really happy about it was Joseph. <laughs> Continuing in verse 5 of chapter 37. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. And he said to them, listen now to this dream that I dreamed. Now behold, we were binding sheaves in the midst of the field. And behold, my sheaf stood up and it remained standing. 
Then behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Will you really rule over us? And they hated him even more on account of his dream and because of his words. Then he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brothers. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream again, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Exactly eleven. <laughs> and he told it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Will I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the ground to you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Even though Jacob himself had previously received divine revelation through a dream, so he knew that was a real possibility, he didn't like Joseph's dream. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to have your brothers bow down to you, but to have your dad bow, come on now. <laughs> I rule and reign over the house, not you. <laughs> he wasn't really happy about this bowing down to Joseph. Now, Joseph was just a baby-faced 17-year-old. And in the natural order of things, there was no way for him to rise to such prestige. But Jacob didn't completely dismiss it either, because he too had had divine revelations through a dream. Now, you don't really see any more about that later on. It's just that little note saying, eh. <laughs> Jacob never forgot about the dream. Jacob knew from experience that a dream given by God could be very helpful later on down the road. It wasn't an immediate answer. It was, you need to have faith in the one true and living God so that whatever comes against you later, you know your end is not what other people have planned for you. Your end is what God has planned for you. So it wasn't too long after this that Jacob unwisely <laughs> sends Joseph to check on his brothers. There's that ruling and reigning again. Who are out tending the flocks a good distance away. When Joseph finds them, his brothers have devised a plan to get rid of Joseph and his ridiculous dreams. Because as far as they were concerned, they would never bow down to this kid. He was a baby. <laughs> the brothers just wanted to kill Joseph outright, with their own hands even. But the eldest son, Reuben, convinced them to just throw him in a pit as a means of killing him without actually killing them themselves. After all, he was family. <laughs> and family really shouldn't be killing their siblings. <laughs> so the brothers take Joseph's robe and, and dip it in animal blood so that they can convince their father that something terrible has happened to Joseph. But they, of course, had nothing to do with it. Reuben, though, had actually planned to come back and rescue Joseph when the other brothers weren't around. Now, why Reuben didn't stand up and say, I'm the oldest, we're not killing this kid, he's just a snot-nosed kid, <laughs> get over it. <laughs> but he didn't. He tried to manipulate the situation to work out well. But while Reuben was off attending his flock, the other brothers decided to make a profit off of Joseph instead of just letting him die. They could make some money off of him. <laughs> Brotherly love. <laughs> 
So they pulled him out of the pit, and they sold him to some Ishmaelites that were on their way to Egypt. None of what happened to Joseph that day was God's idea. There's a lot of theology out there that says everything that happens is God's will. God planned it that way. God didn't plan it that way. That's not the way God would do things. Years ago, I heard a testimony on the radio that I was appalled. (laughs) It was about how this missionary in a foreign country and some of the banding raiders had taken over the radio station, raped and killed this woman who was a missionary, and took all of their equipment. And their testimony was, praise God. Because of that, we can buy all new equipment. What? (laughs) See, God meant for this to happen so that the insurance would pay for this. It's crazy. But a lot of theology out there is like that. Everything that happens is God's will. No. No, 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 no. God will redeem a bad situation. But God does not make bad situations for us. So Joseph being thrown into a pit and then sold to some Ishmaelites was not God's idea. God didn't need for any of that to happen. But God will use it. God doesn't force anyone to do anything. He just works within those who are willing to listen. God knew what was going on and what was going to happen to Joseph, and he knew it wasn't right and it wasn't fair. But he also knew how to use it to bring forth the power of the blessing promised to Jacob and his descendants. God had a long-term plan to overturn the evil done to Joseph and to bring forth a deliverance that Jacob and his sons didn't even know that they would ever need or want. And doesn't this sound very much like what God did through Jesus? The evil and injustice done to Jesus was not at God's hand. God did not kill his son. He was killed at the hand of unbelieving Jews who handed him over to Romans to be crucified. But God would make use of the evil done to Jesus to bring forth a redemption and a reconciliation that his Jewish brethren didn't even know they needed. Now, Joseph's dreams were not about life without difficulty or hardship. Joseph's dreams were about walking into a finished work of God's hand. God had showed Joseph what his end would be, not the path that would take him there. (laughs) God is smart. (laughs) And if he showed us the path sometimes, we wouldn't get to the end. (laughs) We would change things for ourselves. So God tells him, shows him, this is what is going to happen someday. You are going to rule and reign even over your family. But he didn't show him what it would cost him to get there. And the end would only come to pass as Joseph trusted God with his present as well as his future. God had delivered Joseph from the hand of his brothers and the demise that they had originally planned for him. So I imagine Joseph was probably pretty happy (laughs) to be getting far away from these brothers. (laughs) Getting as far away as possible. Because how can you ever trust them? Once they've put you in a pit and threatened to kill you, how would you ever trust them again? There's no way it would have worked out. Now, up to this point, we can't really see Joseph's personal relationship with God. What I liked about Jacob is we saw those moments when God revealed himself, and they were big moments in his life. 
We don't see that in Joseph. His is more of a steady faith. We never see him complaining about his situation. And it very well could have been because he had the dream. When he ended up in the pit, well, this can't be my end. I already see my end. So you've got to do something. What happens? Faith comes up. I know what you showed me. I know what you've revealed. So God, you've got to do something. <laughs> so God, of course, convinces the brothers to sell him off. <laughs> so we don't see it before he reaches Egypt. We don't see the evidence of his relationship with God too much. But then when he gets to Egypt, then his life with God becomes more apparent. And we can see this in Genesis 39, beginning with verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, a court official of Pharaoh, commanded of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him from the hand of the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And Yahweh was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master observed that Yahweh was with him, and everything that was in his hand to do, Yahweh made successful. And Joseph found favor in his eyes, and he served him, and he appointed him over his house, and all that he owned he put in his hand. I like that this version says Yahweh was with Joseph. That lets us know one, Joseph knew he wasn't alone. Joseph knew that God was with him. And also what I like about this is that Joseph was a man of excellence. Favor with God always. But we don't necessarily have favor with man always. Favor with man is usually earned. Joseph's master, he understood that whatever relationship that he had with Yahweh, it made a difference in the way he lived his life. And he did everything with excellence in a way that would honor God. We can see that Joseph's relationship with God was even apparent to his master. His master recognized that Joseph was blessed. He was supernaturally empowered by Yahweh to prosper. But he also recognized that Joseph was excellent in all that he did. Joseph was honest, and Joseph was trustworthy. And he lived in a way that honored and glorified his God. And that's what gave him favor with Potiphar. Unfortunately, the wife of Joseph's master thought he was pretty special too. <laughs> and she arranged to try and seduce him when her husband was away. But Joseph turned down her advances because of his relationship with God. I love that they put that in here. So often, sometimes with Christians, you can't tell that they're Christians. <laughs> they're baby Christians. We were all there at one time. <laughs> so here we see that he has a mature faith, that it is affecting every choice he makes. So he has a maturity in this faith. Because Joseph turns down her advances, she gets mad and falsely accuses him of rape. And he's placed in the same prison where the king puts his prisoners. God is at work. He's not in any prison. He's in a particular prison. Again, this is not right, and this is not fair. And this was not God's idea. This was the master's wife's idea. <laughs> but God can use even unfair circumstances in our life for our good. 
Potiphar knows Joseph's character is one of integrity, and he has watched Joseph demonstrate that he lives his life to honor his God. And because he probably suspects a lack of character in his wife, (laughs) Joseph is once again saved from death. Because the truth is, if Potiphar's wife had accused anyone else of rape, they would have been immediately executed. Potiphar would not have put up with that. Again, because of Joseph's maturity, because of his integrity, because of his relationship, God is able to even take wrong and unfair things and turn them for our good. So here he is in a prison. Doesn't look like he's going to be ruling and reigning anytime soon. (laughs) But Joseph has faith. He's had the dream. He knows his end. He doesn't know the path, but he knows the end. He knows what the Father has said he is going to become. And we can see this in chapter 39, beginning in verse 21. And Yahweh was with Joseph and showed loyal love to him and gave him favor in the eyes of the chief of the prison. And the chief of the prison put all the prisoners that were in the prison into the hand of Joseph. And everything that was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief of the prison did not worry about anything that was in his hand, since Yahweh was with him. And whatever he did, Yahweh made it successful. So, Joseph went to prison for something he did not do. And it didn't look like Joseph was advancing toward the fulfillment of his dreams. In fact, it looked like a step in the wrong direction. (laughs) Two steps forward, one step back. (laughs) But God, God knows how to orchestrate his plans for us. He can put us at the right place at the right time to meet the right people, to get the right information, to answer the things that we have questions about. God knows how to orchestrate in the midst of us and from within us. So eventually, though it looks like Joseph is getting farther away from God's plan for him, he's actually been being strategically placed where he can be catapulted from the dungeon into the palace where he would sit at Pharaoh's right hand. Again, we can see the hints regarding Jesus. Jesus was falsely accused and arrested and beaten and crucified. It did not look at all like he was headed for a throne where he would be seated at God's right hand. But he was. And unlike Joseph, Jesus knew both his end and his path. Jesus knew what it would cost him to fulfill his purpose which was the saving of many lives. So Joseph is strategically placed in a particular prison where he meets the king's cupbearer and the king's baker, both of which have dreams that they cannot interpret. Just so happens they have dreams. (laughs) And this is found in chapter 40 of Genesis with verse 8. And they said to him, We each dreamed a dream, but there is no one to interpret it. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So Joseph interprets their dreams. And obviously the interpretations are indeed from God because they come to pass accurately. The cupbearer is returned to his job as the king's taste tester, and the baker is hanged. He didn't have a good dream. (laughs) 
Joseph only requests that the cupbearer remember him to the king, which he initially fails to do. But God, God's plans are not thwarted by delays. The cupbearer will, in fact, eventually recommend Joseph to the king for his ability to accurately interpret dreams. Because God gives Pharaoh dreams <laughs> that his magicians can't interpret. This is a setup. <laughs> and then Joseph is called to appear before Pharaoh to see if he can give Pharaoh a satisfactory interpretation, which we can see in chapter 41, verse 16. Then Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in my power. God will answer concerning the well-being of Pharaoh. I love this because Joseph knows where his help comes from. He's not relying on himself. He's, I don't have the power to interpret dreams. God interprets them for me, and then I share them with you. So the scriptures don't provide us with much information about Joseph's state of mind or how he continued to be faithful and walk in integrity and honesty and excellence when everything looked like it was going in the wrong direction. But it seemed like he was getting farther and farther away from the fulfillment of his dreams. He was in, had to stay in prison another two years after he had interpreted the dreams. Everything looked like it was going in the wrong direction. But God. What we do have from Joseph is a statement of faith that shows us that Joseph has not lost faith in what God has revealed to him through his own dreams. Again, God had showed Joseph his end and the fulfillment of the dreams. But as far as we know, Joseph didn't know the path to that fulfillment. He just had to keep believing in what God had already revealed to him. Joseph then proceeds to interpret Pharaoh's dreams as a warning sent from God regarding a severe famine that would come upon the land. There would be seven years of great plenty, followed by seven years of drought and lack. And the lack would be so severe that the years of plenty would be completely devoured and the land would become destitute. Joseph not only identifies what the dream means, but he also gives Pharaoh a divine strategy on how to save the country from the ravages of famine. We can see this in chapter 41, beginning with verse 33. So now Pharaoh should look for a wise and discerning man and give him authority over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh should do this. He should appoint officials throughout the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should gather all the excess food during the good years that are coming. By Pharaoh's authority, they should store up grain so the cities will have food and they should preserve it. This food should be held in storage for the land in preparation for the seven years of famine that will occur throughout the land of Egypt. In this way, the land will survive the famine. And Pharaoh is convinced that Joseph has properly interpreted his prophetic dreams and has also provided him with a divinely inspired strategy to save his country. So he decides to promote him to his own right hand so that he can institute and oversee the strategy. Joseph is then placed in the highest place of power in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. Joseph is now in the right place for the complete fulfillment of his prophetic dreams. And those dreams involved his family coming and bowing down before him, which was going to be facilitated by the drought and the famine. God is able to turn all things for our good. He is able to use whatever circumstances we find ourselves in to move us into the right place 
at the right time so that we can fulfill his plans for us and for those we love. So Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to buy food and Joseph recognizes them. And then Joseph engages them in a series of tests, so to speak, to see if they have had a change of heart regarding what they did to him and also to see if his baby brother is safe and well-treated by them, and also to see if his father is still alive. His brothers end up passing their tests, and Joseph ends up revealing his true identity to them, and they are reconciled one to another. And then Joseph brings his entire family to Egypt, where they will grow into a mighty nation under the care and watchful eye of Joseph. Even this is a fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. Joseph saw both his father and his brothers bowing down to him. And this is fulfilled when his father, Jacob, is brought from the land of promise to Egypt, where he lives for another 17 years before he dies. And he lives those 17 years in submission, bowing down to the power and authority of Joseph's position as prefigured in his dreams. So Joseph's father and all of his brothers saw the fulfillment of Joseph's prophetic dreams and how the God of all grace was able to turn all things for their good. In the story of Joseph, we see a consistent life of faith, even in the midst of less than favorable circumstances. Joseph's life was a bit of a roller coaster, but his faith in God and his promised future remained firm and steady. His eyes seemed to always be toward his God and the fulfillment of the prophetic dreams. Joseph knew that the death in the pit was not his end. The pit was just part of the path of the prophesied future. And then he also knew that the prison was not his end. It too was just part of his path to his prophesied future. And he also knew that living without his family was not his end, but simply part of his path to his prophesied future. Because of Joseph's God-given dreams at the age of 17, Joseph was able to not lose hope, even when it looked like everything was against him. God had given Joseph a hope and a future, and that future even went beyond his death. Our scriptures in Hebrews 11, verses 21 and 22, point us specifically to the faith of both Jacob and Joseph at the end of their lives. I have it for you again in the Passion Translation. Jacob worshipped in faith's reality at the end of his life. And leaning upon his staff, he imparted a prophetic blessing upon each of Joseph's sons. Faith inspired Joseph and opened his eyes to see into the future. For as he was dying, he prophesied about the exodus of Israel out of Egypt and gave instructions that his bones were to be taken from Egypt with them. Each of these men saw a future beyond their death they somehow knew the physical death was not their end. It was just part of the path that would take them into their future that God had waiting for them. Jacob prophesied over each of his sons regarding the nations that would eventually come from them. But then he also did something unusual. He adopted Joseph's sons as his own, indicating that both Ephraim and Manasseh as nations would one day have a legal claim to a portion of land within the nation of Israel, a nation that at that point did not yet exist. God had revealed the future to him of what these 12 sons are going to become this great nation of Israel. So here we have Jacob incorporating 
which is really neat because Joseph's children were half-breeds, Hebrew, and they were Egyptian. So you have the Jew and the Gentile being included in God's plan. <laughs> Jacob also makes Joseph promise to bury him in the land of promise, in the same place where Abraham and Sarah were buried. But why? Why did he want to be buried there? Why did it matter? <laughs> he was living in Egypt. Probably because Jacob knew what the land represented. It represented the kingdom of God and the realm and rule of God. And we can see this in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. Here the author writes regarding Abraham. Abraham lived by faith as an immigrant in his promised land as though it belonged to someone else. He journeyed through the land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were persuaded that they were also co-heirs of the same promise. His eyes of faith were set on a city with unshakable foundation, whose architect and builder is God himself. The patriarchs often seem to know and understand a lot more than the scriptures plainly tell us. Obviously, God had continued to reveal the future to both Jacob and Joseph. They knew they were part of something much greater than themselves and even greater than just their physical descendants. They knew that there would one day be a Messiah. And if they knew about the Messiah, then they must have understood, at least in part, of what the Messiah would come to accomplish. And we know this because of what Jacob prophesied over his son Judah whose descendants would one day be the tribe from which Christ would come. In Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and the allegiance of the nations is his. According to the Easton Bible Dictionary, the word Shiloh can be translated several different ways. It can mean the peaceful one, the sent one, or even the seed. God had told Adam and Eve that there would one day come the seed of a woman who would destroy the power of Satan. So they knew to look for the seed. <laughs> and of course, Paul explains this, who the seed is in Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So both Jacob and Joseph expected that the promised land was more than just a piece of property ruled over by God. It was the promise of entering into the same realm that God lived in and living there with him in a heavenly country. And in light of the fact that they had their bodies buried in the promised land, this also might point to the possibility that they thought, hey, I'm going to need these bones later. <laughs> if they believed in resurrection. And we know that the Jews had that kind of understanding that there would one day be a resurrection. So because both Jacob and Joseph believed in the promises God had made to Abraham, they had their bodies buried in the promised land as a demonstration of their faith. Knowing that the land was a type and shadow of a spiritual future and an eternal land and was not actually about some dirt in the Middle East. It was much bigger than that. How do these stories of Joseph and Jacob help to encourage the Hebrew baby believers who were reading this? 
Well, the Hebrew baby believers were in the process of learning to let go of the types and shadows presented in the Old Testament. And they were learning to embrace the realities found in Jesus. They needed to be able to let go of all of the types and shadows and accept that Jesus is the fulfillment and the reality of all of the types and shadows. Jesus is the promised land, just like Jesus is the bread come down from heaven. And Jesus is the mercy seat. And Jesus is the lampstand because he is the light of the world. And Jesus is the temple torn down and resurrected. Jesus is the true vine, the true Israel, and the true Son of God. And Jesus is the one and only true Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. They needed to continue to believe that all of God's promises are yes and amen only in and through Christ, not in and through national Israel. The baby Hebrews needed to let go of Israel. <laughs> the church needs to let go of Israel. The baby Hebrew believers needed to let go of their desire to stay in the physical land of Israel. The land was only ever a type and shadow of what would one day be real. The land was no longer the source of their blessings. Israel is not the source of our blessings. Jesus became the source of their blessings. They needed to believe that the land no longer held any power to bless them and that they were actually called to leave Jerusalem and go into all of the world because all of the world was now blessed in and through Christ. They needed to see the promises of Abraham were ultimately all fulfilled in Christ. It was no longer, I will bless them that bless you, national Israel, and I will curse them that curse you, national Israel. It was now, I bless those that bless Jesus and curse those that curse Jesus. The whole point of the Old Testament types and shadows was to point them to Christ, to Jesus. And they needed to believe that their future was found in Christ alone and not in a piece of property in the Middle East. And so do we. <laughs> Israel is anti-Christ. They want to lock you up for bringing Jews to Jesus. They are not our friend. <laughs> now, do we pray for them? Yeah, absolutely. We pray for everybody to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But our future and our hope is not based on a piece of land in the Middle East. It's based on Christ and Christ alone. Unfortunately, many Christians are trying to help Israel take over the world. And that's their plan. They actually want to take over the world. And they're starting with Gaza. But I won't go there. <laughs> the Hebrew baby believers needed to remember that all the difficulties that came against Joseph was on his path into the promised future. These Hebrew baby believers needed to leave the land. They had been ingrained. It had been indoctrinated in them that this is why you're blessed, this piece of property, that God made these promises to Abraham. That's why it was so important for Paul to say, no, no, it's not about property. It's about the kingdom of God. We don't live on a piece of property where we are blessed because of the property. We live in Christ, and that's why we're blessed. The Hebrew baby believers had a promised future, both on earth, he said there was a deliverance coming, and in heaven. 
And they needed to continue to believe and stand in faith, believing in their promised future, especially when confronted with persecution and difficulties. They needed to remember all the things that Joseph and Jacob had gone through, all the difficulties of Joseph being thrown into a pit and his family trying to kill him off and then being put in prison falsely. But that's something he didn't do. They needed to remember because this was the kind of thing that was happening to them because of their faith put in prisons and being lit like torches. (laughs) And all of that looked to them like their life was going in the wrong direction. If I'm following God, won't my life be perfect? (laughs) That's what Israel thought. If I'm blessed, God likes me. And if you're not blessed, well, then God doesn't like you. So here, this goes against everything they were taught. It looked like they were walking in the wrong direction. And that's why he says, no, think about Joseph. Think about what he went through. But it was only the path to the fulfillment of the promise. The pit was not his end. The prison was not his end. The palace was his end. And the palace is our end. Right now. We sit at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. And whatever difficulty comes, that's where we stand. I am the blessed, and you will leave. (laughs) I will overcome you because I am blessed. I am empowered to prosper in everything I set my hand to. Just like Joseph. Joseph knew God, and he trusted God. And God empowered him, always empowered him to prosper in spite of his circumstances. And God was more than willing to empower the Hebrew baby believers to continue to believe his promises and to continue on their path to their promised deliverance. And the same is true for us. God is always willing to speak his promises to us again and again. And again, it's amazing how quickly we forget. So he reminds us again (laughs) of where we sit and who we are, who he has made us to be. So he gives us his word over and over and over again so that we can stay on the path that leads to the fulfillment of promises. We don't have to be derailed by the things that come against us. They're just an opportunity to show off Jesus. (laughs) And we will overcome whatever comes against us. God has the ability to give us divine strategies. He gave Pharaoh, an unbeliever, a divine strategy to save his country. I am praying for divine strategies so God can save this country. (laughs) If he'll do it for Egypt, he'll do it for us. So we are very much like Joseph, who was positioned at the king's right hand and given all power and authority over all the king owned. We are spiritually right now, in and through Christ, at our Father's right hand, and all his power and authority has been conferred on us so that we can implement our divine strategies and overcome whatever obstacles we are facing. The victory is ours now. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Refusing to let anything discourage us from manifesting 
what our Jesus has already paid for us to have. We are called as sons of God to rule and reign over ourselves and over our lives and to participate and cooperate with Christ even in the midst of unsettling circumstances and know that those circumstances are not our end. Those will not be the end of us. We will overcome whatever comes against us. Christ is victor in us and through us and for us. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father God, for these characters. You have such a way of, of, of being able to work with disaster, turning things that look terrible into something that becomes glorious. You are able to cause us even to rise from the ashes and declare Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't matter what comes against us. We know our end. Our end is Christ Jesus, here and now and forever. Father God, we do thank you that we can look forward to our bones being raised too. We can look forward to the day when Christ returns to earth and the curse is forever done away with and you get to have your way and your will done in every place. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833 632 1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.